Hello there, it's Craig here for the Vinyl Conflict Podcast. What you're about to hear is the episode that we did towards the end of 2020. It is NWA, of course, versus the mighty Wu-Tang Clan. However, there might be a couple of confusing wee bits here because although we recorded this third, we're releasing it fourth. So if you hear us talking about, oh, this is episode three, it technically is, but it's not really because we did a Christmas episode and decided to release this one a wee bit later on. Regardless of the numerical discrepancies, we hope you enjoy it. Have fun. We'll see you soon. Hello there, and welcome to episode three of Vinyl Conflict with Craig. Hello. Danny. Hello. And me, Jamie. Tonight we are going to be doing some East Coast versus West Coast hardcore hip-hop with the Wu-Tang Clan's 36 Chambers and the NWA's Straight Outta Compton. So we're doing this as ever in chronological order, so it is NWA up first, and our champion for that is going to be Danny. Over to you, mate. Hello, thank you for that tremendous intro, Jamie. Good to hear you on the host roll. Oh, thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to be talking about NWA straight out of Compton. Now, this album was the debut album for NWA. It was recorded between 1987 and 1988. Released on August 8th, 1988. Now, this album, interestingly, was, from everything I've seen, completely self-produced by Dr. Dre, Easy e and DJ Yella, although they all get credited with their Sunday names, which was quite funny. Because <laughs> I looked at it and was going, why have I never, why have I never heard of these guys? <laughs> Who's Eric Cartwright? And I was like, oh, wait, okay, that's Easy e Who's Andre Young? <laughs> <laughs> As you said, this marked a real move away from the early 80s tradition of most hip-hop coming from New York and moving this into that more West Coast feeling. Throughout this album, there are themes of things like police brutality, drugs and gang violence, which is, you know, if you've been watching the news this year, just as prevalent in 2020 as it was back in 1988. So probably a very historically relevant album, but unfortunately it's also culturally relevant today. So I think we should just get right into it. Jamie, since you gave that tremendous introduction, do you want to tell us what your favourite track off Straight Outta Compton was? Aye, probably. I'm just going to just get up the track listing just quickly, but I had a, a bit of a hard time picking a favourite for this. I would probably say my favourite song in this album is probably Gangsta Gangsta, mm-hmm. because it's probably the most, or the least samey track on the album. Mm-hmm. As in, there's, you know, there's quite a few changes, there's quite a lot of motifs in it. There's quite a lot of guests, well, guest spots, you know, there's quite a, ro- a lot of rotation through the members. Mm-hmm. I think that there's some really, really nice wee bits. Obviously, this is an album that's really heavily sampled, as a lot of hip-hop is, particularly that sort of golden era time. And in the West Coast, where they really rely on funk, drum breaks and stuff like that, mm-hmm. Gangsta Gangsta had quite a lot of different cuts, which differentiated the sections, whereas actually, we'll get to this, a big criticism that I've got of this album is that it is very samey. Mm-hmm. So Gangsta Gangsta for me was one of the ones where like, it was one of the only songs in this album where I went back and listened to it a couple of times. Aye. You know, like I was like, oh, I really like that tune actually. So for me, that was a standout. Obviously, like, you know, you've got Fuck the Police straight out of Compton and Express Yourself, so big singles, which they're all great. There's a lot of reverence for these songs mm-hmm. and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in more detail. But Gangsta Gangsta for me, because I've not heard it a million times, mm-hmm. was like, aye, that's the winner for me. Brilliant. Craig, what about yourself? What was your favourite track on Straight Outta Compton? I'm a big, big fan on albums of really strong opening tracks. Mm-hmm. And I think part of just my taste in music in general, I don't feel like I've been overexposed to a lot of the tunes on this album. Like, I know the first few bars are most of them, to be honest. But I think Straight Outta Compton, that's the one for me. Aye. It's got an iconic place in the hip-hop at that time, but also just the hip-hop of all time. Mm-hmm. Just a really strong statement mm-hmm. in terms of the heat it got them 
and obviously fuck the police comes into this category as well. Yeah. But the heat it brought them and the potential for negative repercussions in the press and the media and politically as well. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing statement to make as a first track on any album. And I just love everything about it. Loads of really good samples. The balance is good between the three performers that are on it. I just love it, man. Cool. It's quite funny because those two were both my picks for what my favourite track was going to be. I did eventually narrow it down, and Jamie, I'm the same as you, Gangsta Gangsta is my personal favourite. And I think one of the things I like about this is I think this is where they really got the perfect balance of a really like Gangsta song, but also with a really great sense of humour throughout it. When you look into the writing credits on this album, Ice Cube wrote, I think, about 90% of the lyrics for the entire album, yep. including pretty much everything that Easy e rapped. Easy e didn't write very much of his own lyrics, and I think there are just some hilarious bits throughout it where he says, we don't just say no, we're too busy saying yeah, and shit like that. Real takeoffs on the drug culture at the time and how that was the big thing was they were trying to market to teenagers and that. Just say no that's the easy way and then Ice Cube's coming along going nah if somebody offers me a joint I'm gonna smoke it and I think stuff like that just makes it really really hilarious I will say though Craig I think you're absolutely right about Straight Outta Compton being probably as far as albums go one of the best opening tracks ever yeah spoiler alert I've actually got this album on vinyl so they are same (laughs) (laughs) three for three I'm just going to ask then, since you've both got it, is yours missing a couple of tracks in the middle? No, so I've got, it's not an original pressing, but I think it's for the 90s, so mine's just like the full album. Mm-hmm. I know that Fuck the Police was missing off the one that had the parental advisory. Aye. That was totally missing, because there's a whole FBI thing in the 90s, which is actually a really cool point. These guys got a letter for the FBI to tell them to kind of wind it in a bit. Aye. As far as street cred goes. Aye. Aye, that's cool as fuck. That's quite authentic. That's insane. You don't see Neil Young getting a letter off the FBI. Aye. Aye. No, see, mine's is weird because for some reason it's got the first few tracks and then it's the last track from what would be side A and the first track off side B isn't on there. I don't know why because fuck the police is on it. I don't know if it's just a different edition, but who knows. I'll do a bit of roving journalism and I'll actually go to my record cupboard and I'll just see if I dig it out, actually. Right, okay. Sorry if you hear, if you hear Doug noise <laughs> and that, I'm sitting next to my Doug. I don't actually know. What I was going to say about having this on vinyl is, see, when you drop that needle and then you just get that spoken word, you are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge and then the album starts playing. It's like, holy shit, I'm going to (laughs) turn this up as loud as I possibly can. This is great. I agree with that. I think as far as openers go, it is fantastic. It's so good. Mm -hmm. In hindsight, and listening to this album as many times as I've listened to it in the last couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. I would probably say that as much as it's great, the other side to that is I actually feel that the energy slowly dwindles for the rest of this album. Uh, it's a really strong opener and Craig, I agree with you, man. I love it when an album's got a really strong opener. But I think you've got to follow it up with an album full of brilliant tunes. Uh-huh. And for me, I suppose that that strong opener kind of detracts for the rest of it. Aye. Here we go, found it. That probably segues nicely into talking about the overall thoughts on this album. I found a quote from Dr. Dre that I think he'd given in an interview in, say, like 1992 or three, I think it was, so a few years after the album was out. And he said, I threw that thing together in six weeks so we could have something to sell out of the trunk. And that, to me, made a lot of sense because I think 
if Straight Outta Compton was an EP, it would be the best hip-hop EP ever made, because there are like four or five tracks on there that are insane, absolutely outstanding. And then I think there are quite a lot of filler tracks on it. What do you think? Aye, I would agree. I know that Dr. Dre really didn't enjoy this album. He particularly was really critical of his own production in it. Mm-hmm. I think that really does show. I suppose West Coast was really in vogue at that time. And for people that don't really know much about the whole East Coast, West Coast is that East Coast was the really gritty stuff and West Coast was, I suppose, in terms of outward aesthetic, it was like quite light and quite funky. And this album was really clean in terms of its musical content. Yeah. Definitely not its lyrical content, but its musical Aye. content was quite clean and quite shiny. And I think it was rougher in the edges, knowing it was gritty and dusty sounding East Coast, like rougher in the edges as in it sounded incomplete. Aye. It wasn't mixed particularly well. Mm-hmm. The instrumentation on it was really weird, like really, really strange. But I just think it does kind of feel a bit chucked together. Although, to be fair, the sound quality is really good, mm-hmm. which I guess you get when you're using electronic instruments and samples and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it does definitely feel like it was chucked together a wee bit. I agree with that. Aye. What do you think, Craig? It's kind of a par for the course with most albums, I think. I think it's really hard to put an album together and maintain momentum. I think a lot of really good albums do that, and there's only maybe, they're in a minority. Mm-hmm. Only about 5-10% of albums that really get that balance right. Aye. I don't think this one does. It's interesting to listen to it in vinyl, because when I listened to the first half, I was like, hey, I like this. I'm not a guy who listens to a lot of this type of music, so I was like, I'm into this, I actually am really enjoying this. Uh-huh. And then I flipped it, and every time I did, apart from Express Yourself, which I quite like, mm-hmm. but it's very poppy, like, like you're saying, Jamie, mm-hmm. it's very clean, very polished and shiny, and you could imagine hearing it on the radio if there wasn't so much swear words in it. Apart from that, the kind of back nine on this album is no, not going to blow your head off. It's all right. It's no crap. Aye. The front half, it definitely outshines the second half. Aye. Do you know what I just realised? Sorry, I jumped right into production and overall thoughts. We've not done least favourite track yet. It's all right. We can go back to overall thoughts, but what's everybody's least favourite track? I'll jump in. My least favourite track is actually Express Yourself. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I know that most people that know this album know that song. In fact, I would probably go a stretch and say that more people probably know the song Express Yourself than know the NWA. Mm-hmm. The sampling, maybe not the lyrical content, but the sampling's in adverts and stuff. I'm sure I've seen like mm-hmm. an Argos oh. advert or something that had this sample in it. Uh. It's a great sample and it's really well done. It suits West Coast hip-hop to the ground, mm-hmm. but it sticks out. Craig's absolutely on the money. Like It is quite a poppy record. And if I didn't know any better, I would say that this kind of had a mass-produced element to it because Aye. it does seem to appeal to quite a broad audience. I mean, it sold a million records in its first year, Aye. which was mad for a hip-hop album. As I say, like if I didn't know that it wasn't through together in some guy's loft, <laughs> it definitely does have like a mass appeal to it. And I suppose you know a lot of West Coast hip-hop took from this album Aye. going forward. That's what mass-produced sounded like. But Express Yourself kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. Aye. And this is something we'll go back to in further comments and overall thoughts about the album. But the lyrical content 
and the music was so far apart. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, no, I don't like this. Mm-hmm. That's my hot take, mate, at me. I Express Yourself is a weird one as well, because it sounds like they were trying to make that to be the radio hit of the album, although there are quite adult themes in the lyrics, such as like drug dealing and whatever else. There's next to no swearing, there's no fucks, cunts, whatever else might appear on some of the other tracks. There's almost none of that in Express Yourself, so it does sound like it was a bit of an attempt at a pop track that might get them. And I think I had a music video and everything, I'm sure I've seen that on YouTube before, was released as a single. It does, yeah. (laughs) Craig, I'll let you go in a wee minute, but what I'm going to say, to be kind of on the other end of the spectrum from that, my least favourite track on this album was 8-Ball. And the reason I don't like 8-Ball as much is because, in my opinion, it's an inferior mix of Boys in the Hood, which was the first Easy e slash NWA single. I think there are like three different mixes of Boys in the Hood, and none of them are as good as that super raw original version that Easy e put out the first time. I wasn't a huge fan of 8-Ball. Again, I don't think it was an awful song, but I think if it ain't broke, don't fix it. They could have just put Boys in the Hood on the album as it was. Aye. So, Craig, what was your least favourite? I think I'm with you on that. There's a really good breakdown of all the different samples mm-hmm. on the Wikipedia page for this album. And Gangsta Gangsta and 8 Ball stick out a mile in terms of the amount of samples. Aye. I totally see why you guys prefer Gangsta Gangsta. It's a great track. It seems like all the samples work together. But 8 Ball just feels like too busy for me. Mm-hmm. There's loads going on, but none of it quite knits together. Is 8 Ball the one that's got the random one chord for the Beastie Boys in it. The fight for your right to party chord. Yes, yes, it is. They just take a wee break and it plays that and then it just goes back to whatever it was doing before. Aye, stuff like that, I'm kind of like, There's actually about five Beastie Boys tracks sampled on this song. Aye, aye. And Boys in the Hood sampled on it as well, as you point out. Mm -hmm. Overkill, for Noah, brilliant. Jun, like, I like Easy e and he's probably out of the guys on this album. He's probably my favourite performer. Aye. Because he's got a bit of grit in his voice. He stands out a wee bit more for the rest of them. Aye, it's not there. Aye. Do you know what I mean? It's all right. And we express yourself, as much as I quite like it as a standalone, it doesn't belong. Mm-hmm. It doesn't belong on the album. So they two are kind of up the top for me in terms of no feeling there should be there. Aye. But aye, April just pips it. Aye. Just wasn't that exciting either. No. Especially, I think it again hits that turning point of where the album doesn't seem as interesting as it once was. We talked very briefly about Fuck the Police and I think we should probably emphasise on it because with everything that's happened this year with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, that song's just as relevant as it ever was. Yeah. But apparently almost didn't make the album because of its lyrical content. Dr. Dre at the time was doing weekends in the jail for I think it was parking violations. Aye, traffic violations, aye traffic violations he was doing weekends in the jail and he was like if I put this out man I've got no chance but was obviously eventually convinced and the album's all the better for it one of the things though as much as it's a great song as a statement when I think about Fuck the Police it makes me really really sad that that song was written 32 years ago because I don't really see much change in the time since that happened, I feel like black people in America are still living in fear of the police just as much as they were in that time, and that's not right. What you're saying is absolutely right. It is mental. One of the things that really stood out to me when I was listening to this is how it was a big representation of the black experience, mm-hmm. and it does sadly seem that not a lot has changed, mm-hmm. and how relevant that that song actually was. 
to what appears to be the current black experience. Aye. It made me pure sad, but I think like in light of the context of the album, it was really interesting, as I was saying to you guys, that there is a cut of this album. In fact, there will be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of cuts of this album, where the song isn't on it. Aye. It's the only song that's not on it, and the rest is heavily censored. Aye. They definitely played into the, see the parental advisory, Nancy Reagan panic. Aye. Mary Whitehouse. But bad words and tunes, because it turns your way into Satan and all that. <laughs> Aye. Obviously, there is that song, Parental Discretion is Advised, where it talks about, mm-hmm. I'm not going to sing on a song unless it's, or sing on an album unless it's got that sticker on the front. Aye. Which was really clever, and I think, like, maybe there was, Dre was like, if I put this out there, I'm going to end up in the jail for the rest of my life. But mm-hmm. I definitely think this song, it was a protest song. Aye. At the time where you don't sell a million albums unless you're selling to a white audience. And I think, mm-hmm. like, that shock rap really helped to sell that album. And then if you look at, 20 years later, Eminem was selling records tens yeah. of millions of times there with the same tactics as shock rap. Uh-huh. I know it's a different thing because he was mere physical violence, mm-hmm. horrendous misogyny and stuff like that for Aye. shock value. It was a protest for these guys and I'm really happy that it made it on the album. Aye. It was very poignant and sadly still is. Aye. It's impossible for anyone of us to try and understand the true sentiment of this song because obviously it's not something we're ever going to experience. Mm-hmm. Try and think of like what it must have been like for young, particularly for young, but maybe even for older black people in America at the time to hear this because it must have been something they had said to themselves mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of times. I might be talking completely out of hole in my heart here, but it must have been dead affirming in its own Aye. way just to hear this song. And obviously, I imagine it didn't make it to the radio. Too often, but um, I just to hear that thing, and then for it to you know for the FBI to step in, and I remember I remember seeing in a documentary somewhere that they were warned. I think it was in Chicago or something. They were warned mm-hmm. not to play it, mm-hmm. or or the police would storm the Shut stadium the out. and 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 they opened with it, <laughs> which is a phenomenal act of defiance. Because you think about it in reality, any one of them could have been shot dead on that stage. Aye. And that's no changed, as far as I can see. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's too much of an overstatement to say it might get worse. Aye, aye. A brilliant, brilliant statement, really controversial. But it's sad that it's controversial, it's just the truth. Mm-hmm. And the truth's always going to be controversial in an album. But aye. it's amazing, it's a phenomenal statement. Something I obviously find it difficult to relate to in my own experience. Mm-hmm. Phenomenally brave statement to make. Mm-hmm. I definitely think like that song, like the whole FBI letter and that, that's in the annals of rap, hip-hop history, for sure. Like, oh, it's kind of overblown by the media because it was basically like one guy that didn't like rap music wrote a letter and said, why pack it in? Aye. But still, I mean, he got a letter for the FBI, it was on letter-headed <laughs> paper. I bet he ran into the office like that, check us out! <laughs> <laughs> I also think, and this isn't me being cynical, this is just as a lover of the music industry, it's also a phenomenal selling point Aye. to be like, well, that good, we've pissed the FBI off. That's amazing. Aye. Aye. <laughs> it's going to sell you a few records, and rightly so. That's brilliant. It was the same with the Satanic Panic parental advisory stickers. All that done was convince people Aye. to buy records because, like, oh, I wonder what this is about. Oh, it's about shagging and stabbing folk and that. So like, <laughs> they all ran out in their droves and bought hundreds of the albums. Again, if I didn't know better, that would have been a fantastic marketing decision. Aye. 
to put that song in that, that album, if, of course, it wasn't a protest song about police brutality. Aye, aye. Aye. It's mental, but in hindsight, I bet you were all high-fiving each other at that decision, because that album wouldn't have sold anywhere near as many records if it wasn't for that song being on it. Aye. This seems like a good transition. We've talked about some of the positives that have come off the lyrical content as far as people finding it quite life-affirming, people that have had the same kind of experiences and seeing something that they can relate to. Now, we did say before we started recording that none of the three of us are going to say the N-word on this podcast, but it is something that's obviously a talking point about this because it's literally the name of the band. It's N-words with attitude, which is probably the the whitest thing I've ever said. (laughs) Fucking worse than it. But it's it's worth thinking about. Now, what I'm going to bring up, I read this article a couple of years ago and I went back to it. It's on Variety.com. This was back in May 2018. There was a quite an infamous clip from Kendrick Lamar, who's a phenomenal modern rapper, did a gig a couple of years ago. And he used to do this thing where he would bring people up on stage to rap some of his songs. And at this gig, he brought up this girl on stage who was a white girl, maybe about 18 or 19 years old, to rap one of his songs. And then she starts doing the song and she starts saying the N-word within the song and she gets booed, people are throwing shit at the stage and everybody's going absolutely mental. It was quite controversial at the time. It was discussed quite a lot of, oh, did he do this deliberately to try and make some kind of point? But this article that's on Variety was written by a guy called Jeremy Heligar, who I have looked up because, again, white people's opinions on what is and isn't okay as far as what black people can do or what they experience isn't really relevant. This guy is black. I've looked him up. So he's probably had many more experiences of that word than any of us have. And he wrote an article and it said, it's, the headline is Kendrick Lamar's Onstage Outrage why rap should retire the n-word for good and what this was discussing was that if rappers are continuously putting out albums that are being sold to as jamie said this album and others like it millions and millions of copies many of which are being bought by white people and enjoyed by white people does that normalize them thinking they get a free pass on saying the n-word because i'll be honest there were times when I didn't really understand racism the way that I do now and I just thought oh these are brilliant songs and as long as you're saying it along with the music and you're not saying it otherwise it's okay and I only know now as an adult that that's not okay and that's not on that's my personal experience of this word in music although freedom of speech people can put what they want on their albums it is worth talking about like do you have some kind of responsibility if you are an artist and you put that out does that then mean that there are more white people that think it's okay to say it because it's in music? So I just wondered if you've had any thoughts on that. Hmm. To be honest, apart from maybe express yourself, I struggle to think of a song on this album that doesn't have the N-word in it. That Kendrick Lamar instant, it was really interesting because it was like a big hot-button topic. Mm -hmm. I imagine there were a lot of dissertations written about that very topic. I remember being quite quite torn in my opinion to be honest I mean I don't think it's alright for white people to use the n-word I don't think that at all but I totally understand the point of it's in media and songs if you're in the car and you're singing it you're singing along with a song Mm -hmm. I mean we're never going to know really but that Kendrick Lamar instant may have seemed to be 
deliberately inflammatory. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I appreciate that a lot of people seen that Lassie's maybe lack of tact, but at the same time, mm-hmm. she was invited to sing along to that song. So I can absolutely see it for both sides. And I think like mm-hmm. we we had been saying, you know, before we recorded this episode that this is gonna be three white guys avoiding saying the N-word for two hours. <laughs> Aye. It comes up so much. Aye. We had said this when you guys had said to me about hosting and I had said at the start we kind of briefly discussed how we were going to approach this and as I said, it's not our word to use. Mm-hmm. I think like it's really important to recognise that it's part of a culture that we are outside of. It has a really powerful and poignant meaning for people. Mm-hmm. And for us, we are outsiders looking in. And that's not to say that we can't enjoy the artistic output of black people. Actually, I would probably go as far as to say that I enjoy the artistic output of black people more than any other race. Not that race is getting any day with it, but Aye. I'm a massive hip-hop fan. I always have been. I'm a massive jazz fan. I've been really into that. Yeah. In the last couple of years, it's probably my most listened to music. And the musical output of black people for me is just unbelievably good. But I'm still, by and large, when it comes to the cultural side of things, I'm an outsider looking in. So I, I get that, you know, there's, there's that really strange difference of opinion when it comes to that Kendrick Lamar thing. In terms of the album, like, you know, NWA and, and the Wu-Tang Clan we're going to talk about, like, it's, it's part of that artistic expression. If that word wasn't there, it would be weird. I get why it's there. It is there in an abundance, you know what I mean? But it's a, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a great way for, you know, black culture to take control and take meaning um, that, unfortunately, generations ago and actually even now has been mm-hmm. taken away from them. Do you know what I mean? So, like, it, it's absolutely understandable. Yeah. But as, as you say, it's, it's all the way through, you know? So, hi. It's maybe why I don't listen to a lot of this music is because I find it difficult to relate personally. Mm-hmm. What I'd see it as, I don't know if this is me showing my innocence a wee bit of this type of music or, or even, you know, black American culture. But I, I see it as a kind of, as a window into something. Like you mm-hmm. were saying there, Jamie, about being a kind of outsider looking in, I really feel like that. Not to the point of alienation or anything, but just like, okay, this is something I've never experienced. What's this like? It's no, and it, it, no that I think these words are comparable at all. I, I want to make that really clear. I think these are different words for different eras and, and, and mean different things. But as, a, as somebody who's part of the LGBT community, there's certain words within that community that also get used kind of in the same way. Mm-hmm. It's almost a kind of reclamation or something that mm-hmm. was weaponized against. You know, I, you know, I've been called a lot of things beginning with F that, that I, personally for me, I would never use. I don't see them in a positive light. I never will. So it's not something I would use as a self-referential mm-hmm. thing for, for me. But even, you know, and I, I suppose that's how I deal with that stuff. But I think that it's not something I even, it comes to me, why? Why the hell would I use that word? Mm-hmm. Can I use it myself? It's not, it's not something I can ever use to refer to me. It's not my experience Aye. to be treated that way. Mm-hmm. And, and for, the, for the racist weaponization of that word, doesn't apply to me. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's a thing with certain white people, and I've met some of them, who use it and think they're kind of poking at it, and it's kind of cool and edgy to use it. These people make me want to bath. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, Craig, when you say aye. white people using that word, or you, you're talking about the N-word and not... Aye, 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 absolutely. Aye, sorry. Right. Oh, no, no, just 
So even even guys I know that I've you know worked alongside or studied alongside, and and they use that word, and I'm like, wow, how like what what does that word mean to you? And maybe you know maybe if I was living in America, I would get maybe a context for it. I don't know, but living in Scotland, it's not a word you hear used very often, mm-hmm. even by the people of colour in this country. Yeah. I don't think it's something that's particularly massively used. Yeah. So it's it's definitely not something you'd hear me saying and I don't really get why any white person would use it. I, I can't think of a context in which it would be Aye. make sense. Never mind being acceptable mm. or, or, or in good taste or whatever, but just why? What the hell would you say that for? Uh, I think one one thing the English language isn't short of is other words. Mm-hmm. So like Aye, well. we've got our aim, you know what I mean? Like they're not ours, <laughs> but you know, but feel free to use as many of them as you want. But there was like three hundred and thirty thousand unique words in the English language, so I'm cool using three hundred and twenty nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine of them. You know what I mean? <laughs> Aye. Aye. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we we kind of went off on a bit of a tangent there, but I think to be honest, it is it is something that's worth talking about because, as I said, I think a lot of this music has normalised some of that. Maybe not not to an insane degree that guys are you know white guys are saying it to each other. Like it's it's not like that. Well, not for the most part. But I so aside from that, then musically, what are you know sort of overall? Let's say kind of closing thoughts on these albums, or even any other tracks that we want to kind of shout out. I think this is a an album that has captured the vogue of West Coast hip hop. It is not by any means perfect, mm-hmm. but I think it, it it was one of the last albums that was really in the golden era, particularly of West Coast hip hop. Mm-hmm. And I think it had it had mass market appeal, even though that that wasn't that it that wasn't its intent. Yeah, it shifted. I think it's shifted three million albums to date, and one right. million of those albums was in its first year, which is, wow. which is mad for a self-produced album. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I suppose again, that's the nature of hip hop and it being uh, like protest in a way for the very start, you know. But uh-huh. I think like it's a it's a really important album. It's by no means perfect, but for me, it really encapsulates. When I listen to this album, I think about late 80s California, which, you know, mm-hmm. I was born a year after this album was released, and I've mm-hmm. never been to California, so my experience of that is maybe, what's it, what is it you can say when it's nostalgia that you've never experienced? Wistfulness. Yeah. It's, it makes me wistful for that era of, or what I think that era of late 80s Californian mm-hmm. hip-hop was all about. And uh-huh. that's a good thing. That's cool. Aye, cool. I think overall, I did mention this briefly earlier, but my thoughts are that it's a good album, but not a not a great album, not a phenomenal start to finish album. But I think what it was was it was an amazing jump off point for some. I mean, the all the fact that they were in NWA to begin with means they had amazing careers. But particularly Dr. Dre, who went from doing this to becoming you know one of the biggest, probably to becoming Dr. Dre. <laughs> I I essentially to be like, I mean. How many times if you were to walk through the town like seeing like a pair of Dr. Dre beats headphones or turning on the you know, I mean, putting on MTV or whatever a music channel is these days to see like Eminem or any of these people. And I think like Dr. Dre, like although I've heard a lot of people criticize his rap, say that he's not actually that good a rapper, like his flows and that aren't amazing, but as far as a producer and even just a a music enthusiast, if you will, all the people that he's then went and discovered who have become immensely successful, like it was a great jump off for him. 
and then Ice Cube as well, who had a great rap career on his own and then transitioned. Well, not transitioned because I think he still does a bit of both, but to then go and like become an actor and everything like. You're using that word a bit fast and loose there. He was in movies. He was was in in some films. Right, I'm sorry, but go and watch the two 21 Jump Street films and tell me that Ice Cube is not like a comic genius. Like, his delivery of everything is insane. I, I like, granted it is limited to both of those films. Like, I don't know that he's ever given any other stellar performances, but in them, he's absolutely outstanding. I also, oh, side note, because me and Craig love horror films and Jamie you've seen horror films I am aware of horror films yes. <laughs> a couple of months ago I watched Anaconda for the first time starring so gee good lord oh, <laughs> Jesus. I literally watched that like a fortnight ago and like if you want a like I don't know if that was the f- it wouldn't have been the first film that Ice Cube was in I'm sure Boys in the Hood would have been before that I'm going to I'm going to pull this up you keep talking and I'll take <laughs> it out right, right so Aye, in Anaconda, if you want an example of how much Ice Cube was in the film just to be like just to be a name on the poster, one of Ice Cube's biggest solo songs was It Was A Good Day, which is a, a great song, but in the film, like whatever, whoever the character is that speaks to Ice Cube was like, oh, how's it going? And Ice Cube's first line in the film is like something to the effect of, what can I say, today's a good day, like the hook from the song, like... Mm-hmm was definitely only there just to be himself but at the same time as i say if it wasn't for this album like we wouldn't have ice cube's phenomenal performance in anaconda so i think of course. It's, it's culturally relevant for that alone what, what we're forgetting is you know, obviously daniel i don't know if you've seen either of these two films but the first appearance that ice cube had in a movie was boys in the hood which is a right. brilliant film right really good i yep but also the comic masterpiece that is 1995's Friday. Oh, aye. Yes. Aye. So he was in that films. And, a, and a handful of other absolute guff. <laughs> but let's have a look at what he was in another movie called Thicker Than Water. He was in a movie called Ghosts of Mars, which if anybody's actually seen, they would have probably gouged their own eyes out. <laughs> oh, it's horrendous. What else? He was in Triple X State of the Union. Nice. The, the follow up to the Vin Diesel Triple X movie. No, some X rated. Good to know. <laughs> That That's would have probably been a better movie, to be fair. Like, if his sex life is like how he describes it in music, it would probably have been better than that actual film was. He was in Rampart. If anybody's getting that ever today we read it, they'll know about the really famous Woody Harrelson Ask Me Anything on Rampart, which Ice Cube was also in, you know, 21, 22 Jump Street, straight out of Compton. Obviously, he was in that. Oh. And then yeah, by the way, side note, his son, O'Shea Jackson Jr., see the first time I seen the trailer for Straight Outta Compton, I just about shat myself. Like, I know it's his da, so he's gonna look like him, but see just uh, how much he looks like him. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's uncanny, isn't it? It really is. Uh, also, the, the guy that plays Tupac in that film was like, actually made me believe that Tupac did fake his own death and just sort of sneakily popped back up in Straight Outta Compton because that was another proper dead ringer. Aye. Absolutely. Aye. So I suppose I should jump jump in here with my Aye, I go on closing, closing thoughts. Yeah. Is I, I like I'm coming to this as a relative newcomer, this album. It didn't blow me away the way I was expecting it to. I maybe had too high hopes for it because I obviously it's a it, it's a debut album and debut albums are hard. Having listened to it a few times, I think there's a really good EP in there. Mm-hmm. Kind of paddy do it. 
to, to last, and it lasts a long time. I didn't realize it's an hour long. Ah, it's an hour long, aye. Which is a you know, it's long for any album, but particularly a debut. The thing I find really interesting about this group in general is Easy E, as a bit of a conspiracy theory fan, and a, a bit of, a, you know, ironically, a, a fan of bands that have lost members and stuff. Mm-hmm. Easy E's, you know, death and, and the kind of circumstances that led to it, I find quite interesting. It's the kind of unsung conspiracy theory of, of, of American rap music. Because obviously you get Biggie and Tupac that kind of lead the lead the way. Aye, but aye. Easy, there's loads of wee things about Easy that it just stands out as a kind of interesting thing. And it, I always feel like, I mean, I mentioned earlier that I prefer his his vocal stylings and stuff. I also mm-hmm. feel like just for what I've read and what I've heard from other folks, there's there's maybe an authenticity ascribed to him because he was like a proper gangster. Like he was, a, a, although I imagine the had various kind of dealings with that world. He he seemed to be a wee bit more immersed in it all than Aye. the rest of them and lent a bit of an authenticity to the group that maybe they wouldn't have had otherwise. I don't know. Yeah, but it's just I, I'm drawn to him. I'm drawn to him as a kind of figure in that music and a, a kind of figure in kind of popular culture in general. Aye, but overall, I enjoyed it. It's 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 challenging as somebody that's not in that culture and in that world to, to listen to it and get a sense of what's happening. And it contextualizes a lot of the stuff that's happening in the modern day. So it's. It's an important album to listen to, I think. I think you've, you've made a couple of really good points, and actually this was some bits of my notes that I've kind of drew a big box room and, and wrote, like, maybe don't mention this. Um, so <laughs> this might be one for the edit, uh, for, for, like, this is for the Patreon fans. There is a massive argument in the music, crit- the music critique world of how little of this album's lyrical content was authentic. Now, you're right, Easy e was probably the only person that actually had real dealings in the world of like gang violence. And now, I don't I don't know this, right? So that's why I'm saying it was like, I don't know if I'm going to bring this up, but I don't know how much the other guys in NWA had involvement with, you know, gangs and gang violence and the drug mm. dealing and, and the violence that, you know, that, that makes up a really big part of the definition of hardcore hip-hop. Mm-hmm. But there's been a lot of arguments for music critics over over the time that this album is mostly show and these guys are, are either talking about the idealistic nature of gang violence, which Aye. when you listen to hip-hop that is gang-centric or from gangs in origin, mm-hmm. you can tell that these guys have lived that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, for me, that... And I, I'm not... I, personally, I don't really care that much about authenticity. But I think when sometimes things in this album come off a bit like flagrant lies. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's true, but that's how they appear sometimes, and that kind of put me off a wee bit. Definitely, for sure, it comes across. And, like, you know, we've, we've said this about how Ice Cube done most of the lyrics, and I think, like, maybe that's where some of the lack of authenticity comes from, what the guys are saying is that they, you mm-hmm. know, they never wrote it. There's Aye. a, you know, common consensus is that Dr. Dre's never written a line he's in rap in his life. Aye. So I, I kind of can see where that could be coming from both sides, but I just think it's really interesting, Craig, that you're bringing that up. And you know, there's there's loads of people out there that I've already mentioned, like how much of this is for show. You know what I mean? It's I I don't know. I think there's a flip side to that. I think you can kind of see groups like this, guys like NWA and Public Enemy, and you know Wu Tang as well, who we're going to talk about. You can see them as spokespeople for something that's really happening. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a you can almost see groups like this, even if what they're rapping about isn't 
specific to them, mm-hmm. kind of feel confident enough to say that it's probably authentic to somebody. Mm-hmm. Aye. And Aye. it's true to somebody's experience. And if, if all this group are doing has been a conduit for that and a, and a, a way to express that, that experience to, to the wider world, then I, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of authenticity, but I think in this sense, there's, there's kind of, it's a kind of bittersweet thing. And, and it's, it might not be their experience, but it is experience of the people they're kind of representing. I think that's fair, man. Uh, to meet somewhere in the middle of those two things, just to kind of double back to Craig, what you were saying about Easy E and him being the the most kind of legit gangster out of the out of the collective. I think that's really the reason he was in NWA and he was the face was because he was legit. Because from from all accounts, when they first started, he couldn't rap worth a fuck. Like yeah. a lot of boys in the hood was recorded a line at a time because he had no rhythm and no flow. But they wanted him to be the face and they thought he had like that real conviction in his voice. Hence why Ice Cube was the one writing a lot of the lyrics, but Easy E was the one was the one performing them. It's probably sensationalized because it is a movie and whatever, but if you watch the straight out of Compton film, there's a great scene where they're recording Boys in the Hood and they like hit you know that way like you watch films about music and whenever they're recording the first track, it's one of them like, Oh, everything just comes together perfect. And it's, you know, it's brilliant. Well, this doesn't do that at all. It's like they hit record and he does the first line, which is cruising down the street in my 6-4. But he, like, he just pure, like, kind of, like, mumbles and does it and everybody pisses their pants laughing at him. And they're like, what the fuck was that? You're going to need to do it again. And then he gets pure wound up and he's like, hey, fuck you, man. And then I think it's, I can't, I think in the film, it would make sense for it to be Dr. Dre who's recording him. So I'm going to guess it. It's been a while since I've watched it. And he was like, see the way you just said that to me? do the first line but do it like that and then like they record the first line and then it's something to the effect of like oh it's going to be a long night and that was what they were getting at was that mostly like his early stuff at least was recorded literally a line at a time because he couldn't rap but he had a great voice and he had a great conviction for that style yeah aye cool so it's probably about time we wrap this up Okay, so well, it's probably about time we finish this recording and then we'll go on to part two. So please join us for part two, where we're going to discuss Enter the Wu Tang 36 Chambers and then, you know, sort of compare and contrast these two albums and how they shape up to each other. Anything for anything else before I end the recording? Troops, thanks very much for listening. Cheers. Excellent. See you when you join us for part two. Bye.